Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. Welcome to week three in our major fall series out of Paul's last words, just before he's executed in what we call Second Timothy. Paul now wants to encourage us, as he was encouraging Timothy, in one word we don't really like very much, perseverance. Another word is endurance. This word means a lot to me in my own story. I think I've been pretty honest with you as my church family, as the congregation, that I struggle with a pretty severe form of a learning disability called dyslexia. Uh, I have it. Um, one of my kids has it. My father has it. My grandfather has it. Actually, I was part of a sick kid study. Uh, they're trying to find out if it's genetically oriented. But all that aside, I remember arguing and yelling and screaming with at my mom in grade two, grade four, grade eight. I'm stupid. I'm dumb. This is never going to work. What takes me four hours took my friends a half an hour, and I just wanted to give up. I felt so just done. Some of you can relate to what I'm saying. My mom, full of patience and mercy, kept saying, no, no, you can do it and you will do it. And not only that, what, what you don't understand at 8 or 9 or 12 or 14 is you are learning a work ethic that in the long run will change your life. She didn't use the word endurance or perseverance, but, but it's what she was teaching me. And it did change my life. And if it changed my life in this way, Paul comes along and says, actually, perseverance and endurance in the things that really last matter even more. That's why Paul, and if you've been with us so far, that's why he spent the whole first chapter on all that God had done. So Timothy and then all of us would be marked by one thing, gratitude, so we could keep going. Paul outlines all that God has done, all that Timothy's family's done, all actually that he has done and he kept doing to inspire him. Now, what were all the amazing truths in chapter one? We learned that we are called by God's purposes and grace, not our abilities and works. God decided before time to rescue us. God, his nature, his will, his everything is now fully displayed through Jesus. We are saved already. We have the promise of eternal life already. Physical resurrection is secure. Death is out of commission. The fear of death no longer has power over us. We have grace from God. We have mercy from God. We have peace with God. We have the Holy Spirit. We have spiritual gifts. We have godly family history. Many people are praying for us to keep going and encouraging us in our walk with Jesus. We have solid biblical teaching that is true, that is life-giving, that is helpful and is available. And if you're a Christian listening to me today, you have all of this too. You've had it and you do have it. If there's one verse that sort of summarizes all of it, it's actually 2 Timothy 1.14. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Okay, can we just do something? Could we just all stop, no matter where you are, on a couch, uh, listening in a car, uh, on an iPad in the living room, could you just stop and thank God right now for everything that I just outlined, that you're saved, that resurrection is true, that freedom is given to you? Just could you say amen? Could we all say amen no matter where we are? Yeah. Amen. Isn't God good? Hasn't he given us so much? Paul now moves Timothy and all of us from the past to the present, from being thankful to now standing, not running, not freezing, not being overcome, standing and persevering and enduring. And it is so important that we catch the tone of Paul when he writes chapter two. It's written in the tone of compassion. Okay, so Timothy, since all this is true, 
Since everything I've told you is secure and unmovable and God has done it and it is so, be strong. Keep going. Persevere. Carry on. Persist. Dig in. Hang in. Hang on. Keep up. Follow through and knuckle down. If you look up the word endurance or perseverance in the dictionary, it says to continue despite difficulty, opposition, and discouragement. Wow. And he starts like this in 2 Timothy 2.1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so Timothy, I want you to do this. But then Paul, as he always does, never allows us to stand on our own. Notice what he says. Could you put that verse back up? Be strong in the grace. This actually can read in the original language, keep on being empowered in the grace. And that word grace matters. It's the word charisma. It's the same word used every single time when we talk about the Holy Spirit being given to us as a gift. He is the gift. But also it's the word used when we talk about the spiritual gifts he gives us. So Paul says, keep on being empowered, keep on being strong in the charisma, in the power and the presence and the gifts of the Spirit. And then he says, that are in Christ Jesus. That's why the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ, because we are held by Jesus and our holding happens through the presence of the Spirit. One person wrote, God does the empowering, so it's our responsibility to to submit to his work and cooperate with it. It's there, just cooperate. Okay, so the first thing to do to keep enduring and persevering in changing uncertain, dangerous, transitional moments is keep on in the charisma of God. But then second of all, you need to give others the ability to do what you're doing. And these things, verse two, you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrusted to reliable, of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. The leadership of the church at this moment was being depleted. There were killings, persecution, was everywhere false teachers were growing up in every local church. Paul is about to die. Persecution is growing. And so Paul is giving Timothy a strategy to keep going and to build perseverance. You can't do this by yourself. You need to keep empowering others to teach, but make sure the people that you're empowering have character and also have theological, what? Integrity. Then Paul moves all of us to see how perseverance is worked out in boring, dangerous, and unwinnable moments in a greater way. And he he brilliantly uses three common images from everyday life from his time to bring home the point to Timothy as a pastor and all of us as followers of Jesus, what it really feels like and looks like. And so he says, look, I want to talk about a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer, because each one will show us what perseverance is. Image one, the soldier. Now, Paul uses the image of soldiers five other times in his writing. He says in verse 3, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. All soldiers face hardships. All soldiers face battle. All soldiers will be in harm's way. Soldiers die on the field. But Paul's focus is a willingness to suffer for the greater movement and for the greater cause. Now, interestingly, the focus of the image here is not like Ephesians 6 on the battle side. It's actually way more on the discipline side. By the time Paul is writing this, the Roman Empire was massive. They always were dealing with threats and revolts. And the Romans built the first global 
road system, A, so economics could grow, which was amazing, but also so their armies could move very quickly to any part of their empire. It's also why they had garrisons in the most dangerous parts. Here's Paul's point. The army, a soldier, had to be ready to move quickly at any time to go deal with an issue. But you can't do that unless you are what? Disciplined. Notice, soldiers are best when they put their own pleasure and their own comfort to the side for the greater movement. Personal rights are given up. Let me say this again. This matters. Personal rights, personal preference are not even at the center. They're actually not even on the, on the table. He says in verse 4, No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. A soldier is not consumed by normal life, buying, selling, growing a business. None of these things are wrong, but they're not the primary focus of a soldier. And they can't be the, the consuming primary focus of a Christian, though good things. The call is there has to be a consuming want to please one person. Okay, here's the question. Who is our commanding officer? Well, Jesus Christ is our commanding officer. In other words, obedience to his orders are key to winning the war. Obedience to Jesus is going to help us keep safe or save other people's lives. My rights, this is totally antithetical to what we hear all the time in the media and in our own. My rights are replaced by my officer's orders. My wants are replaced by my officer's wants. Lordship has more power than my wants. The first image is profoundly Roman and is about self-discipline. The next one is fully Greek. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. Now, underline that. This is a reference to the original Olympic Games. First, if you came to compete in the Games, you had to swear an oath to the gods... <laughs> that you had trained for 10 months. And if you lied, you got in real trouble. That's the rules. Second, there were strict rules that had to be obeyed while you were actually doing it. If you did not follow the rules, you could be fined. And if you broke them big time, you would be flogged. You would be beaten publicly. Now, there weren't just rules about how to follow. There were also a correct way of, of doing the sport. And if you didn't do them the correct way, then you yourself would be disqualified. In other words, it's the difference between amateur and professional. An athlete follows the rules set down by the committees, and Paul's point is the average Christian life has to follow the rules, and the rules are the teachings of Jesus. So he says you have to be self-disciplined to persevere. You have to follow the rules that Jesus has set out, and then he says, let me use an image that transcends actually Rome, Roman and Greek thinking. It, we all know about it. Farming. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive the share of their crops. Everyone would know how hard farm work is and was. And back then, no farm machinery, no tractors, no computer-run farms. I have, I have a farmer in my connect group. And every time he talks about the farm, I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> I love what, this summary. It summarizes my experience by another pastor. When I drive by a farm, and look at my, look out my vehicle window. I see just enough to know I want to keep on driving. It's sun up to sundown labor, fertilizing, plowing, planting, weeding, protecting, harvesting, storing, transporting, selling, and let's not forget consistent prayer. 
Pets disease, frost flooding can, can ruin an entire season's work. Therefore, a farmer's diligence does not guarantee a good return on the investment. Here's the line. Delayed gratification defines the farmer's existence. The farmer's diligent investment of sweat and toil earns them the right to be the first to enjoy the field and its bounty, and they will enjoy it all the more. See, all three images are about perseverance. How to endure when things are difficult. How to persevere when there is opposition. How to keep going when you feel discouraged. And then Paul, very interestingly, in verse 7 says, reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Hey, Timothy, I want you to think this over. What is actually God saying to you personally? And by the way, let me just camp here for a moment. This is important. (laughs) See, Paul outlines these amazing truths and then presumes that Jesus is actually alive, his spirit is actually in Timothy, and, and the God of the Bible will speak personally to Timothy. So let me say this to all of us. What is God saying to you already? Think about this. What is he saying? Well, then Paul moves to another way to persevere. He moves us from, from images to history. Now, you can't, again, see this in English, but in the original Greek, verse 8 through 10, form again one long Greek sentence. And he's going to outline why truth matters for us to persevere. But I love one person's insight on this whole passage. I'd ask you to lean in. He says, what you're about to read is the opposite of Google truth. I love this. Which provides endless pieces of information, but no knowledge of the whole. The existence or underpinning of truth is why our institutions are called universities, not polyversities. Have you ever thought about that? Una, one. In other words, there is absolute truth. There is truth. It's not just a variety of ideas. So Paul says, if you're going to persevere, you have to be grounded in truth, which is grounded in history. He says in verse 8, remembering Jesus Christ, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. David, there's the summary right there. Jesus comes from the name Yeshua, which means God saves. It's a shortened form of Joshua. Christ is Messiah, anointed one, promised deliverer, fulfillment of the Roman faith, the, the Jewish faith. Raised from the dead, Jesus physically died and physically was raised to life. Jesus was real, historical, and his physical, real resurrection guarantees that all his promises and all his teaching are authenticated and true. Jesus is descended from David. King David was the greatest Jewish king that ever lived, the conquering king and the man after God's own heart. And Jesus not only comes from his line, which was a prophecy, but he also fulfills all that was promised to him. Listen to what Samuel said to David in 2 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are over, David, and you rest with your ancestors when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He will be the one that builds a house for my name. That's Solomon, but keep reading. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What? Forever. Oh, Solomon's kingdom wasn't forever. See, this is talking about the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of this because his father's kingdom is forever. And then Paul says, this is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Okay, you want to just sit with this for a moment? (laughs) I mean, we know he's in a bad situation. We've heard this for two weeks. But while he's penning 2 Timothy, he's literally in chains. Like, this is real persecution. He's in chains for being a Christian. But not only that, he's called, what, a criminal. 
Now, this word is only used for the worst of the worst. This is not for shoplifters or jaywalkers. No, no, no. Or, or someone who got a traffic ticket. Actually, this word is only used once in the whole New Testament. It's used when Jesus himself is about to be executed. And it says on his left and his right, Luke 23, right? Two other men, both what? Criminals. The worst of the worst were about to be executed. And remember, to the original audience, Jesus himself was considered a criminal also. And that actually is the point. Paul is now following in the literal footsteps of Jesus. The same moment, the same message, the same fate, the same false accusation. But Paul's point is death never wins. The demonic never win. The world never wins. David's kingdom line never ends. And it's never overcome. Listen to the whole verse. I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. And here it is. But, but God's word, it is not chained. Out of false accusation and out of death comes resurrection. Out of imprisonment, the message of salvation goes on. God's word is not chained. God's word is not bound to just to one leader or, or one church. Yes, killing and persecution slows things down, but the work of God cannot be stopped. You should be saying amen wherever you are right now. The word of God will spread. God is the source of his word. God is the one that will move it forward. And if God is unstoppable, his word is what? Say it with me. Unstoppable. He says in verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too will obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And there he does it. Now he moves from suffering, chapter 1, to enduring. And why does he endure? Because he loves Jesus with all his heart? Yes. Why does he endure? Because he wants eternal reward and is promised? Yes. Why does he endure? Just for those two things? No, no, it's deeper than that. I give my life to the local church. It's the hope of the world. I give my life to the elect. Why? Because actually God chose them. I didn't, he did. I give my life to the local church. Why? Well, let me tell you why. When Jesus lay dying, he thought of my brothers and sisters by name. They are the literal replacement of the temple in Jerusalem. They are the temples of the Holy Spirit. I give my life for them, Timothy, and so should you. And all the work we're doing, it's going to result in something called eternal glory without limit. It ripples forever. It's worth it. And then Paul does something here. He stops and repeats something that probably every Christian 2,000 years ago had memorized. Here is a trustworthy saying, a powerful statement, an authoritative statement. Now, this was not just some poem. Almost every scholar I read this week believes that either this was a creed said in the church or an early chorus or hymn sung in the church or both. This confessional song summarizes the whole gospel. If you're a seeker or a skeptic today, you're going to hear the good news of Jesus right now. If we died with him, that's Jesus, we also we will also live with him. So the whole conversation goes back to what? Resurrection. This is a very direct allusion to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This is a summary form of what he wrote to the church in Rome earlier in the book of Romans. Romans 6.3, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead uh, through the glory of the Father, we too will have new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. By baptism, you are confessing 
that you've already believed. Baptism doesn't save you. It's evidence what you believe. You believe that Jesus Christ was from Nazareth. He lived. He really died. He physically rose from the dead. And both of these statements in Romans and 2 Timothy remind us that one day we will be physically risen from the dead because now we are in Jesus. Every time there's a baptism, no matter the person's age or gender or history, whether you grew up as a Christian or not, we are reminded death does not have the final say. Then he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. This is written, by the way, in the present tense. We need to keep on persevering in our Christian life. It's a normal part of the Christian life. We keep on loving God and loving our neighbor. But then this darker moment shows up. Actually, a verse we wish wasn't in here. If we disown Jesus, he will disown us. Now, this comes from the very teaching of Jesus himself in Matthew 10.32. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my father that before my father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before others, I'll disown before my father in heaven. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. How does someone disown Jesus? Well, we got to be careful but let's walk it through. I mean, billions at this moment disown Jesus all the time. When they hear his teachings and they say, no, that's disowning him. When Muslims say he's just a prophet, not the son of God, that's disowning him. When Hindus say he's just one of many incarnations of God, that's disowning him because Jesus says something very different. When many of our Jewish friends say he's a great leader, but not the Messiah, that's disowning him. But in this case, it's a little bit more closer to home. This is what we call apostasy. This is not someone struggling with Jesus. This is not saying, I'm walking away for a long period of time, but I'm going to come back, maybe. Remember, this is important. The prodigal son never stopped being called a son in his long rebellion. He never was out of the family. This is when someone absolutely, fundamentally renounces Jesus Christ and says, I reject it all. And you have to ask the question, did they ever know him in the first place? Now, verses like this should never be dismissed. The words are serious and there are eternal implications. But if the average Christian misreads this, they will be consumed by fear. And and it will lead to what many of you have talked to me about, where you are running to a priest in the confessional booth to make sure, to make sure, to make sure that maybe possibly you were in because you didn't want to die without some covering. Or maybe you grew up in another tradition where you were at the altar every Sunday or every Friday or at camp to make sure that you had to... No, no, no. No, no. Those who truly know Jesus never fully disown him. Struggle? Yes. Compromise? Yes. Wrestle with fear? Yes. With doubt? Yes. With ongoing sin? Yes. Every single Christian on earth is not consistent, but that's why the next stanza is so important. If we are faithless, mm, mm, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Faithless in Greek means to be unfaithful or disbelieving. If we doubt, if we struggle, if we're unfaithful, if we're fragile, if we sin, if we are prone to wander, he will be faithful because he can no longer disown himself. Why does that matter to us? Why does it matter to you? Romans 8.1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Since we are in Christ Jesus and God elected us to be in Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 1, is in us until the day of redemption, How can Jesus deny us? We're part of him. We're in him. We're his family. He's our older brother. He's our high priest. We're his bride. We're already seated with Christ in the heavenly realms even when we're screwing up. He cannot repudiate himself. 
eternal life, hear this, eternal life and physical resurrection and forgiveness of sins and the new heavens and the new earth is not based on our faithfulness, but on Jesus who is faithful all the time. Assurance is where this confession song ends. Assurance is the last stanza. You say, John, what's the take home for me this week? Here it is. Sing that all week, that last line. Say this all week. Let this be the most important thing you hear all week. Post this on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. It's way more important than anything else you're posting. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot disown himself. That's your identity. That's your stability. That's the ground floor for being faithful. This allows us to keep going. This is why we can persevere because it's not based on our faithfulness, but on him. You can't be a farmer and you can't be a soldier and you, and you can't be an athlete unless you know you're already in. Here's the second way we persevere. We let hope and encouragement root itself in us. How do you, how do you get yourself encouraged in the faith this week? Okay, here's number two. Not only is Jesus faithful to us, God's word is not chained for real. Look beyond the scandals where church leaders keep falling around you. Look beyond all the things we can't agree on with each other, which makes our unity hard on the best of days. Look beyond the hurdles of global persecution or the growing post-Christian secular sexual revolution that's moving our culture from apathy to hostility towards the Christian faith in Canada. I know it's been seven months since we've been able to meet and we miss taking communion together and being with each other and singing together and it hurts and it's not normal and I'm frustrated. But hey, everyone, God's word is not chained. The largest baptism in Thailand's history happened in September. 1,435 people were baptized. After 200 years of Christian witness, the dam is finally breaking in that Buddhist country. In Iran, right now, over 1 million people have become Christians recently. The Joshua Project has now, that, that basically researches unreached people groups globally, has now claimed through multiple studies that 1.6 of Iranian citizens are now Christians. And they're now sort of watching the evidence that evangelical churches are growing almost at 20% annually in that country, in that Muslim country. One global census just done suggests that 10.2 million Muslims have converted to Jesus Christ worldwide, most significantly in France, Germany, Indonesia, Turkey, and Belgium. You want to know a really wild thing? The Pew Research Center has just done a major study in the last 10 years that now through research tells us 1.6 million American Jews now identify themselves as followers of Yeshua, Jesus. The same study suggests that the vast majority of that 1.6 million actually grew up in Jewish homes. Here's why I'm telling you this. <laughs> there are just as many Jews today who claim that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God and the fulfillment of the Jewish faith as there was in the first century. The Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ is not chained and is growing. And think about all the conversions in this church and think about all the baptisms in this church and think about all the life change in this church. God's movement is everywhere. Don't be discouraged because of COVID or because of lockdowns. God's word has gone global even in this virtual moment in ways we could never imagine. Jesus is faithful when we're faithless. Be encouraged, persevere. 
God's word is not chained. He's doing stuff in countries we never thought we could ever see. It's happening. Be encouraged. But here's the deeper question for you personally. We're called to persevere in our Christian life. As the political landscape changes, as the culture changes, as we keep grappling with what we call the new normal, which isn't normal, how do we persevere despite difficulty, opposition, and discouragement? Well, let's use the three images of Paul. And here's my prayer all week. Let the Holy Spirit give you one of them. Soldier, athlete, or farmer. What, he's going to speak to you. I hope you're ready. Be a soldier of Jesus Christ. Who do you want to please the most? Do you want to please Jesus more than anyone else? More than your parents? More than your spouse? More than your kids? More than your roommates? More than your friends? More than your professors? More than your employer? More than our culture? More than your political views? More than what you feel or desire? More than what you grew up thinking? More than what is easy? More than what make you popular? My rights are replaced by my officer's orders. My wants are replaced by my officer's wants. Jesus is Lord. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Some of you, to persevere in this Christian life and not be shipwrecked, need to say today afresh, I'm a soldier of Jesus Christ. I will obey him and only him. Be an athlete by obeying the rules. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. We are a movement of truth and of love. I love when one person was wrestling this through. They were trying to work out what is discipleship? How do we obey God? And, and he wrote this, is discipleship a commitment to doctrinal beliefs concerning God and Jesus? Is it a way of life, a way of love that sets disciples apart from the world? Maybe it's an experience, a mystical, spiritual encounter that transforms. And I love when he says, it's actually all three. Discipleship is a way of thinking, doctrine. It is a way of living, ethics. It's a way of supernatural experience that cannot be compared with anything in the world. We're people of truth. We're people molding our lives after the will of God. And the only way to do that is to know the commands of God and the promises of God. And the only place to know that is the scripture, the Bible. And the more we hear the Bible and know the Bible, the more we'll become like Jesus. The rules don't save us. But we want to be like the one that has saved us, so we obey the rules. Let me say that again. The rules don't save us, but we so want to be like the one that has saved us, we obey the rules. So I just want to do something. I want to just outline, I want to read, plain reading, some of the rules for we as Christians. And, and just hear them. Just get all the distractions away from you right now and just listen afresh. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. It's God's will that you should be sanctified holy. You should avoid sexual immorality. Each of you should learn how to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. That's one of the rules of being an athlete for Jesus. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each of you should give what you've decided to give. Oh, not if you're going to give, no, how much you're going to give. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion. God loves a what? Cheerful giver. Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming still. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other, forgive one another. If, uh, if any of you have a grievance against someone else, forgive as Jesus has forgiven you. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands 
as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wife. Don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases God. Fathers, don't embitter your children. They'll become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for God. Whatever you do, no matter where you work, work at it with all your heart as working for Jesus, not a human master, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Jesus you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for the wrong. There is no favoritism. Philippians 2.4, don't look to your own interests, but each of you look to the interests of others. Some of us are called to be soldiers and need to submit to lordship. Many of us just need to be an athlete and move from an amateur to a professional where we just say, this is what the Lord says. I need to start obeying and following. This is how we persevere. Maybe the last image is for you being a farmer. Let me quote that again. Delayed gratification defines the farmer's existence. Much of the time we feel it's not worth doing the Christian life because there seems to be no results. Why keep going? Why deny yourself? Why keep holding out to the gospel to those who don't even want it? Why obey the Bible? Why read the Bible? Why do the spiritual disciplines? Why keep standing in a culture that keeps saying more and more we're old and out of touch and medieval and dangerous? Why keep giving your money to a local church when you could have a better RSP or, 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 or a cottage or pay off your current home? Why keep serving in a local church? Why do any of this? Well, the answer is, most of us will never see the results or reap the rewards of our faithful perseverance until the new heavens and the new earth. We get the reward later, but we need to keep tilling the field now. So a friend of mine said the other day on Twitter, be faithful, be diligent, be obedient, be strategic, be passionate, be loving, believe. What is the Lord saying to you today? Think on these things. Father and Son send the Holy Spirit across all of Sanctus Church and actually beyond Sanctus Church to all those who belong to other communities that are listening. Help us to endure. Help us to be faithful. Help us to persevere when there's opposition, when we're discouraged and we're difficult. Thank you, you can't repudiate yourself. Thank you, the word of God is not chained. And right now as a whole church, we pray, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit and the word of God even more around the world than we could expect or imagine. Right now we ask in Jesus' name, in our families, in our church, in our region and beyond. But Holy Spirit, I now would ask you to tell those who need to think like a soldier, Give them the image. To those who need to be more like an athlete and obey the rules, speak to them. To those who need to understand the toiling of a farmer and delayed gratification for their greater good, would you speak to them? Speak to all of us. Help us to be a church that endures in this moment and all moments. And we pray this in the name of God, the Father who called us, God, the Son who died for us, rose and prays for us, and the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who gives us the power to say no to sin and guarantees our physical resurrection. And the whole church said, huh, amen. Thanks for hanging out with us. I hope you join us next week. It gets more interesting, more dicey next week. You're like, more dicey? Yeah. Next week, we start talking about what happens when false teaching shows up in your connect group and in your church, in your pastoral staff, or in your mind. What do you do? Can't wait to see you next week. See you then.